Hear this from Romans 14, 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel, quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may not eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment over the ser servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you do, if you haven't already, please meet me in Romans chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here, and I'm really grateful to get to open up God's Word with you today. Uh, Romans 14, verses 1 through 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beginning uh, of the New Testament, hit Acts, go to the right, if you get to First and Second Corinthians, back to the left. Uh, today we're going to start a new chapter, but really we're going to stay settled on a similar theme that we've been looking at over the past uh, number of uh, weeks. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, has been talking about the life of love. After 11 chapters of talking about doctrine and that you're justified by love through the work of Jesus Christ and all of the implications uh, therein, he's now been talking about how do we live this out? How do we live in such a way that reflects this truth? So that we're not just people who have a nice thought about who God is and then live however we want, but how do we connect what we know to be true about who God is with the way that we live our life and conduct ourselves um, in community? Um, and from there, we are introduced to what seems like a very specific thing that now Paul is dealing with, for perhaps the very first time in Romans. So he's been talking generally, and now he kind of gets pretty particular about what the people in first century Rome were going uh, through, and it's about disagreement. So that's what we need to talk about today. Isn't it interesting? After 13 whole chapters, he's like, all right, now we're going to get to what I know is going on in your church, and I'd like to address it. So I just want to say, if you think my introductions are really long, all right, Paul took 13 chapters to really get to the point, and I feel like, you know, maybe we don't take that long all the time. Um, but that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what does the life of love look like when you disagree, when we disagree with each other. Um, and I think it's an important thing to keep in mind because they're not disagreeing about core issues of the gospel. They're debating, they're not debating sins and even commandments. What they're debating are what many call matters of conscience, Matters of conscience. They, they have different perspectives toward cultural and social issues and ideas. From what the scriptures perhaps give a lot of freedom to, they are debating and discussing and even disagreeing and beginning to judge and to speak ill of one another. Specifically, what the Christians in Rome disagree about are food and holidays. Food and holidays, if you can imagine. These are the things that they were going fisticuffs over. You see, some who grew up in the Jewish uh, faith and in Jewish homes were abiding by strict dietary regulations of the Old Testament, and others didn't. They, they didn't grow up in that experience, and therefore they didn't value those rules in um, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Some understood that certain days were really, really special and that others were sort of ordinary, and others thought every day really was kind of the same. And so there's the, the source and substance of their disagreement. But both of these groups are in community together. They're both in the same church. They have these different views of pretty important everyday things like food and holidays, and yet here they are together. 
So this is why this is so important for us, is because I think we can relate to that. Because ultimately, when it comes down to our ideas about God and about the scriptures and about everyday life, theologians for many years have debated over like how to organize all of this. But um, some language that I've found helpful is this, that some people see all doctrines or all ideas about God like springs on a trampoline. Springs on a trampoline. You take a spring out, you can still have fun all day long. The thing still works, right? You take something, you take one idea out, maybe two or three, everything still works. Others see doctrine like bricks in a wall. Essentially, you take one out, the integrity of the entire wall um, is compromised. Now, as I often do, I run my ideas by Laura, and she's a general contractor, and she says that illustration makes no sense. Because if you're building a wall of bricks, you take one out, and it's fine. And so I understand that. And so against her better judgment, I'm going to use these illustrations because I think they're at least helpful little handles to consider some things. Um, But she thinks that they're awful. She thinks it's not helpful. So you guys can let me know later. So ultimately, though, I think that not every doctrine is like a brick and every doctrine is like a spring, but when we open up the Bible, there are some things that seem fundamental, some things that seem non-negotiable. They, they seem more stative, more, more foundational to who we are, and other matters seem like, I don't know, it could go either way. Like, we'll see, you know? And so that's more like a spring. That's more like something that maybe we could take out and everything would be fine. Jesus' identity, his burial and resurrection, that feels like a brick. That seems pretty fundamental, that if we take that out, the whole Christian project falls apart. But eating meat, celebrating religious holidays, and various other secondary issues, it seems like those are much more negotiable. Paul is talking about springs in this chapter, not bricks. He's talking about secondary issues. And so we should approach this text not as a life-and-death situation, but is ultimately understanding that the issue is never the issue. In other words, what we're talking about is not really what we're talking about. It could be food. It could be dates. It could be some other matter of social faith. But ultimately, what matters most is are you loving each other, right? Are you getting along? Ultimately, that's the focus. It's not about what is being contested and discussed. The doctrine isn't the point. Rather, what Paul is keen to communicate is how we treat each other when we categorize different things as bricks and springs, when we organize our spiritual life and our theology differently. You see, what Paul observes is that instead of loving each other and learning from one another's differences, what we are prone to do in the first century or the 21st century is to despise each other and judge each other over these secondary matters. That's the substance of our consideration today. So here's how we'll organize our time. First, we'll look at our freedom from judgment, and then we'll look at our motivation behind judgment, and then lastly, we'll consider, hopefully that will hold us all accountable, our cosmic judgment. So we'll look at our freedom from judgment, our motivation behind judgment, and then our cosmic judgment. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, left to ourselves, we make a mess of all of this, and we've done a pretty uh, good job of that. Um, And so we pray that in the midst of our confusion, and our emotions, and our judgment, our sins, and our pain, and our hurt, and our shame, and all of that, would you speak truth and life to us today? Maybe even as we consider this subject, it feels like, oh, this isn't going to hit my heart at all. This isn't going to help me at all. I pray you would even surprise us in ways that you bring this truth to bear to our hearts, to bring comfort, and healing, and joy, and clarity, and truth. Sharpen our minds to think rightly, Soften our hearts to love well, make our feet ready to obey and to do as you have called us to. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing that Paul does is he gives us a picture of what healthy community looks like, what it looks like to live with one another in a, in a context that is free from judgment. So Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So for the next couple of chapters, Paul is going to juxtapose two people. He's going to juxtapose a weak person and a strong person. And the first he describes here is weak in faith. And the second he's not going to identify uh, explicitly until the next chapter. But essentially he's talking about a strong person. We sort of sense their presence and that kind of idea throughout. And so we should be wondering, who is that weak person? Who is that strong person? How do we understand the kinds of people he's talking about and understand how this uh, truth comes to bear in our everyday lives? So first, though, it's probably good to say who they're not, who Paul is not talking about, or how he is not categorizing the weak and the strong. I don't think he's talking about non-Christians and Christians. In other words, he's not looking at some in the bunch and saying, well, you're weak, so you aren't in the faith, and you are strong, so you are in the faith. He's not talking about non-Christians and Christians. In fact, both are probably likely members of the same local church. So they serve on the same deacon team together, the same elder team together. They're in small group together. Um, they do potlucks together. That's you bring a little bit of every meal, depending on where in the Midwest, or you know, that may not be familiar language to you. <laughs> but everybody brings it. it. They all are in life together, right? Paul also, I don't think, is comparing those who have a lot of trust in God as the strong and those who don't have very much faith at all as the weak, which I think is really encouraging because remember Jesus said all you need is what? A mustard seed and you're good. All you need is a mustard seed. So there's no way he's now saying you've got a lot of faith and you've got a little faith when he's saying really what you need is a mustard seed. You need just a little bit because ultimately faith is not about how much, but it's always about who. It's always about in who you place your faith, not how much faith you place in them. So that can't be what Paul is comparing. What's most likely then in the context is that the weak and the strong have a different understanding of the law, a different understanding of what the scriptures mean about habits and experiences and beliefs around matters of conscience, about what it means to be people who follow in holiness. They're, they're having then a hard time distinguishing between matters of principle and individual preference. And I think that's really hard to do sometimes. Sometimes when we read the Bible, you go, that's how everybody reads it, and therefore that's the truth. And other times you're like, how does anybody agree on what in the world Ecclesiastes means? Like, how does that fit into our everyday life, right? And so I think what Paul is helping us do here from the very outset is to understand that though we may read the same Bible, our conscience and by way of the Holy Spirit, we may come to a different conclusion on certain matters, and that's okay. That's what he's beginning to engage so he's talking about people who have come to different conclusions about bricks and springs. I hope that makes sense still. So scholar Leon Morris brings some more clarity. He explains that there's, uh, there's not a difference about faith and trust. Rather, he says, the person Paul has in mind is one who has not understood that the conduct implied by faith, he has, does not understand that when the meaning of justification by faith is grasped, questions like the use of meat and wine and special days are irrelevant. So what we've been learning in Romans is that justification through Christ frees us from an obligation to the law. Frees us. Specific laws that were previously meant for God's people to stay morally pure between sacrifices are now irrelevant for God's people. Why? Because Jesus makes you clean not following these rules. That's how Paul could say in the previous chapter in Romans 13 verse 8, 
He says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So in Christ, Paul says, love is our only law. Therefore, food, days, drinks, and all these other matters of conscience are just that. They're matters of conscience. But this is often what we argue about. This is often what riles us up. See, the weak in faith are those who have a hard time detaching from an old way of living. They're still bound to certain religious expressions which are now obsolete in the new covenant. The strong, on the other hand, are those who are detached or perhaps were never attached to that way of thinking or living. They know and enjoy freedom. And the type of freedom that Paul describes is one that we're all invited to, that he is explicit with to the church in Galatia, when he says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So if you didn't know, I want to encourage you today that the gospel frees you from guilt. It frees you from shame. It frees you from the bondage of loss. So that when we come to the table and we say, this isn't about taking this to be safe, but you are safe. That's the freedom we have. You know, if you didn't take communion today, you still are saved in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. If you got upset at your kids this morning, Lord, help us. You're still good. You're still good. If you yelled at that person, if you had that thought, that frustration, this is what we mean. You're free not to do those things, but those things don't define you. Similarly, Paul is trying to instruct on this gospel freedom, that, that gospel frees us from submitting to dates and religious festivals and things like this as matters of holiness. However, here's, here's where the rubber hits the road. We all arrive at this understanding, or we all experience this freedom in different ways at different times. So that means some of us may be living in more freedom than others, and others may feel more constriction than others, and yet we're all a family together in Christ. You see, through this is an immediate, true freedom and release from sin. Freedom takes a long time to embrace. There's some of us who have been tracking with Jesus for a long time and are still learning to undo or unlearn some things from a previous way of living. It's especially true if you've been steeped in moralism like part of this crowd that Paul is writing to in Romans. See, that means that when we come together as a Christian community, when we're in Christian community, we're all in different places of freedom, and it becomes easy then to despise one another and judge each other based on where we happen to be in our particular journey. That's what Paul is saying should never be the case in the Roman church and should never be the case at church in the square The strong aren't supposed to build a community for themselves and center themselves and say the weak just better catch up. Instead, what's he saying? Welcome the weak. Welcome the weak. In in Greek, in the original language, the word welcome has way more packed in it than the English language could supply. It's the root word lambano. It's the same word that Matthew uses when he records uh, what the angel said to Joseph, Jesus' dad. When he said, rise, take, Limbano, the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. To Limbano someone is to put them, not to put up with them, or to simply let them exist in your presence, right? Some of us are like, I welcome him, he's here, right? I'm here, right? We welcomed him. No, it's so much more than that. John Stott says it means to welcome them into one's fellowship and into one's heart. You have not welcomed your brother and sister if you have merely let them sit next to you on Sunday. So Lombano is really about loving someone you disagree with. Are you with me? In the week, in Rome, we're likely in the minority. 
They likely were not making up the large swath of people who were coming to faith. And so the strong were meant to draw them close, not to argue with them over matters of conscience, but to love them. After all, is this not the story of our faith? Have not we, the eternally weak, been welcomed by Christ, the eternally strong? Is that not our story? And therefore, to not do that with one another is to deny and to reject the gospel in the way that we live. See, the cross of Jesus Christ frees us from judgment. We have been welcomed. We have not been despised. We have not been judged. We have been loved. That's the gospel. And this gospel changes your heart, doesn't it? It should. It should do something to you that's really frustrating. You're just like, ah, I really want to despise this person and I cannot do it. I have to love them because that's how Jesus treated me. That's the gospel. The strong should welcome the weak. Why? Verse, look, look at verse 3 the secondary, second portion of it, for God has welcomed him. So God has welcomed the strong and the weak. God has drawn close the strong and the weak. God has befriended the strong and the weak. This idea becomes even more emphatic in the next chapter in Romans 15 verse 7. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And how has Christ welcomed you? How has he welcomed us? By grace. Not by saying as soon as you come along, as soon as you figure these things out, but by grace, with love, free from despisement and judgment. This is certainly a brick, if you will, a foundational truth of who we are, that we have been loved in a certain way, and therefore we love in a way of emulating that truth. You take this out, the whole project falls apart. It collapses. And so as a community, we are meant to be established upon this foundation, welcoming all kinds of different people in different stages of their freedom and spiritual development, people with whom you and I will likely disagree. See, the life of love results, I think, in this life, in this community of unity and diversity and all that that means. We'll get to more of that in a minute. Because in our fallenness, what happens? Diversity breeds judgment. See, I think we all love that picture, unity and diversity. That's wonderful. But we've got to deal with this deep, dark whisper that doesn't look at diversity and difference and distinction and disagreement, first and foremost, with a lot of warm fuzzies. We look at it with a lot of despisement and judgment and frustration and anger and fear and superiority. And this is where Paul takes us next. He clarifies not just what it looks like to have freedom from judgment, but he clarifies the motivations that we have behind judgment. So what is it? What is it that motivates? What is it that uh, leads to a judgmental and critical spirit? Remember, we're not talking about bricks. We're talking about springs. We're talking about matters of conscience, not core doctrine. And in Rome, they're talking about food. So look at verse 2 and 3, Romans chapter 14. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So some believe they could eat, and we could eat anything. They see no spiritual prohibition against eating meat in particular. Others believe dietary restrictions are not only still in force, but promote holiness and righteousness. And what Paul is saying is that regardless of what you believe, in fact, the specifics don't really matter, there's a motivation which grows in our hearts to not welcome each other, but instead to despise and judge. So first, in verse 3, Paul says the strong are tempted to despise the weak. Those who live with more freedom 
often, if not always, have this temptation to look down at other people who do not live as free as they do. What's more, this view that they view them as inferior Christians who have yet to ascend to sort of the spiritual heights to which they have come. You know this feeling? You look at somebody about where, where you were instead of saying, thank you, God, where you have grown me, where you've showed me, what you've saved me from, how you've washed me clean and purified me. You go, ah, these youngins, right? They don't understand what it's really like to track with Jesus. They don't understand what it's really like to be faithful, to be generous, to be loving, to be kind, right? That's judgment, church. That's despisement. Looking at somebody else, comparing yourself, and sort of feeling that warm, wonderful feeling of how finally found someone better than you, to, or you're better than, to make you feel better, right? That, that's what Paul is talking about. What does Paul say? This is the caution. Let not the one who eats despise. Don't do that. The same root word, that word for despisement, is what Herod says of his treatment, or rather what Matthew says, or Luke says, of, of Herod's treatment of Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated, despised Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothes, he sent him back to Pilate. It's the same word. This is the opposite of welcoming. It's the opposite of drawing close to those we disagree with. It's holding people at arm's length and holding them in contempt, refusing to know or perhaps even be associated with them. Do you know that person that person that someone finds out that you know and you want to qualify that you're not really that good of friends with them, you want to kind of use that distancing language, like we just had coffee like twice. I don't, they don't really know me. I don't really know them. You're like, but you like everything on Instagram. Oh, I'm going to unfollow them today. That's wrong. That must be an algorithm issue, right? We just want to create distance. That's despisement. That's judgment. I don't want people to see me through them. Are you picking up what the scriptures are throwing down yet? See, beneath the surface, the strong are prone to see rules like springs. In other words, all these religious things, they're negotiable. Take one, take a two, take a few out, all is well. They're free. Ironically, what Paul is saying to you and to me uh, through the church in Rome is that their freedom combined with despisement leads to a new kind of bondage. You see that? The more free I am and the better I think I am than somebody else, I become incarcerated to what? Bitterness, despisement, competition, comparison, anger, resentment. We view them as simple. We view them as immature and narrow-minded. And you and I, with those thoughts, are the ones who are really incarcerated and trapped. See, the motivation underneath judgment is superiority. In Rome, the strong think they're better than the weak. And you can't love someone if you think you're better than them. It's impossible. Secondly, in verse 3, Paul says that the weak pass judgment on the strong. Those who live with more limits um, look at the others with, uh, who are tempted rather to look at the others with judgment, who live with more freedom. While the strong think the weak are legalistic, the weak think the strong are lawless. They don't care about God. They don't care about following him and, and holiness. And beneath the surface, the weak are prone to see every rule like bricks, like everything is a matter of life and death. Paul says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. While the motivation for the strong is superiority, I think the motivation for the weak is fear. 
the motivation that leads to despisement and judgment. See, we're prone to follow rules with this type of zealousness because they provide us with a kind of moral assurance. And so we build robust walls of theology which are clear and strident and comprehensive. We seminary students, right? We're really good at this. Build your theology so you're protected from all the lies of the world comprehensive in order to remain unstained by the world. Ironically, just like what happens with the strong, ironically, in seeking safety behind walls of rules, we are morally exposed. When we treat everything like a brick, invariably, what do we do? We start throwing them. When everything is a matter of life and death, we got to kill some heretics out there, right? And people who don't live the way that they're supposed to, because they're a danger to all of us. This is Jesus' concern with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. The Pharisees are these elite religious teachers of the law who to you and I would have looked like the most morally pure people in the room. But Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What's Jesus saying? They tithed everything. They gave a little bit of everything to God. They were sure to do exactly what they thought the Bible taught them to do. They thought they were safe because no one could say they did anything wrong. They did everything right. But Jesus exposes them. See, their moral diligence, if you will, had led them to neglect love, which is kind of an important rule in the Scriptures. In the form of justice and mercy and faithfulness, they were exposed because they'd been negligent in those things. See, fear tells us we are unsafe, and rules tell us they'll protect us, that people who don't follow them are dangerous. And so it leads the weak to pass judgment on the strong. Again, in Paul's day, the sources of despisement and judgment, it was food and the law and holidays and this sorts of, sort of thing, which I think we have a little bit of distance from. Few of us are debating with vegetarians, right? And just going fisticuffs in our group about how they are disobedient or not living their best life because they're missing. I mean, maybe some of you are, right? I mean, if you haven't had a good burrito, let's just, let, I mean, let's just be honest. I know there's vegetarian burritos, whatever. What about us, though? Let's bring it home. What causes the strong in our day to despise the weak? What causes the weak today to judge the strong? What do we disagree about? And we can make a really long list, I'm sure. We can put things like baptism and communion and these sorts of things, but I don't think those are really the things that we get disgruntled and despise one another about. There's more. See, within our church family, one of the things I love about our church family is you sit down with a different person and you'll get a different worldview. You'll get a different perspective. You'll, you'll hear the scriptures and understand the scriptures and the gospel in a different way because of the diversity of thought and expression and experience. And honestly, I'm not sure if all of the divergent thoughts that I'd like to walk us through are exactly in line with the way that Paul is articulating uh, differences here, but I do know that anything that we disagree with has the potential to lead us to despise and to judge each other. And so that's what I'd like to press in on a little bit. And so for us, for some of us, what we're about to walk through may be uncomfortable because it will be saying too much, and for others it will be uncomfortable because it's saying too little. I think that's part of what it looks like to walk this out together. So let me lay out a few ways that I know we disagree as a church family, and then let's consider what does it look like to love each other in the midst of our disagreements. Sound good? We disagree about abortion in our church. 
See, while some people believe, they open up the Bible, they believe and see God teaching about the sanctity of life, they see that, think then that all Christians should advocate for the eradication of abortion in our day. Others open up to similar passages and see a whole life perspective, demonstrating the vulnerabilities of women and children, not just from conception, but after birth, all the way through their life. And therefore, abortion is a health care provision. Those people are brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. We disagree about gender identity. While some see gender as a binary concept and marriage as a covenant between man and woman in the Bible, others see space for fluidity, complexity, and personal dignity within human sexuality, opening to the same, perhaps, passages of Scripture. We disagree about sexual orientation. For some of us, we open the Bible and believe that marriage and sex are reserved for one man and one woman, while others open up the Bible and conclude that God's love makes space for same-sex attraction and sex and marriage. We disagree about wealth distribution. Some think that, we that wealth is a blessing from God, given to an individual to steward out as they see fit. Others see wealth as a corrupt and evil part of this world that marginalizes the poor. We disagree about parenting. You know this? Some of us spank our children and keep strict bedtimes and never give them carbs on a weekday, right? Some of us are like real fit on this matter. Others, though, refuse to discipline of us and discipline in physical ways and are having much more open conversations at a lot younger ages about sex and family history and dynamics that the family is walking through. We disagree about women in church leadership. Some of us believe that the Bible teaches only qualified men should serve in the role of elders. Others open to the same passages and see space for qualified women in the same position. We disagree about racial harmony. Within our church, we believe that we believe that Christians should vocal, be vocal and active and advocate for the racially marginalized, while others of us open up to the scriptures and believe that God's word only speaks to gospel truth and refrains from overt social and racial applications. We could go on, but that feels like enough to communicate the point, right? Believe it or not, let, let me put it to you plainly. You have a brother or sister in this room that believes many of those things differently than you do. And let me say this, there's part of me that wishes that wasn't the case. There's part of me to just keep it 100 with you. I wish we were all on the same page about every one of these details. <laughs> that feels way more comfortable to me. I wish we could write a paper that everyone had to sign and say, we see and say the Bible in every detail the exact same way, and we, we won't say mean things about any other. You know what? I, like, I wish that, that we could do that. But much more of me is really pumped, is really grateful. Not because these things don't matter, but because I think the Lord is doing something in our midst and communicating to us something of the kingdom in this. See, now there ought to be time and there will be time and space to consider and discuss these things. These are all very important. I don't mean to be flippant with any of them. And as a church organization, we've done our best to think deeply about these things, to answer questions and other issues, not just these, and in good faith set doctrine and policies which demonstrate goodness, beauty, and truth, and not choosing one of those over the others. To be sure, the church in Rome had to make similar decisions. They had to write doctrine down and say, here's what we believe this passage means. And so, That's what Paul is doing. 
Paul is writing a letter saying, here's the truth and beauty of who God is. But notice something in Romans chapter 14. Paul doesn't answer the question here. He doesn't say, here's who's right and here's who's wrong. I kind of wish he would do that. He doesn't, he, what does he say instead? Don't despise and don't judge. Welcome each other. Love those with whom you disagree. Church, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine if we became a people whose primary goal was to show love rather than to show we were right? Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine what that small group time would be like? Can you imagine what it would look like to be a people in a city like Chicago on the northwest side What would that look like to be a church who was known by the fact those people show love they don't always show and make sure that we know that they're right? Can you imagine if we desired to welcome more than we desired to argue and to feel superior? I think this is where God's Word guides us today. This is one of the primary reasons why we elected in our membership process to ask members to affirm or rather agree with primary doctrines but only acknowledge secondary doctrines. To say, yes, we agree on all the same bricks, as bad a metaphor as it is, but we acknowledge that there are a lot of different springs, a lot of different things that we might see and say differently, and we want to be a family anyway. We want to be in this together anyway. But here's the thing. A document like that doesn't give us any power to love in this kind of way. We're only empowered to do this when we keep our cosmic judgment in mind. That's where Paul heads next. He brings it home by pushing it to the heart. Look at verse 4. He simply asks, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He makes it a bit personal, right? He asks, who are you? Who are you? Who am I? How in the world, where did you get off? Who are you? Who are you to exercise superiority over someone who belongs to another? It's rhetorical, of course. None of us is in a position where we ought to control or dictate to another brother and sister above or acting as if we are their heavenly father. We should not pass judgment on them, but not because judgment is wrong. Not because judgment is wrong, rather because we are the wrong judge. See, you and I aren't supposed to judge each other, not because there's never going to be a judgment or that we don't know who's right and wrong or or what is truth and what is not. This is not about moral ambiguity. This is not about saying anything goes. This is about saying you're not God and neither am I. This is about saying you're not in a position to judge and neither am I. The difference is fundamental. The difference is so important. See, throughout Scripture, only one person is spoken about as the judge. God himself. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and just as it is appointed for one man to die, and after that comes what? Judgment. See, Paul latches on to this historical vision of God and this historical understanding of judgment, and he invites his readers to look forward to that day with humility and trust. A day when you will not be the judge, but rather you will be judged. And on that day, 
our Lord, our Master, our King, our Judge, will bring order to all of this confusion. He'll bring answers to all of our questions. Paul says it's up to God if the weak or the strong stands or falls. But he goes further than that. He says God will uphold the strong and the weak. So that's actually not up to, again, this is not non-Christians and Christians. These are all followers of Jesus. And he's looking forward in all of their disagreements and all of their confusion. And he goes, y'all are going to be together in the age to come. Y'all are going to be together for a long time. You might start learning to love each other now right? You all got that, that speech and that road trip, right, from your parents, right? You kids better get your act together. You're going to be brother and sister. You're going to be family for a really long time, right? This is what Paul is doing. He's turning around. Don't make me pull over the car. You guys need to get along. You need to love each other. This is why we shouldn't be judges. This is why we're bad at being judges. This is why we should not despise, because these, our brothers and sisters, belong to the Lord, and we belong to each other. We should show love, not be worried about showing we're right. Remember, the disagreement is over matters of conscience, debatable topics, matters of the day that we face as well. And I think Paul is helping us to see that not only are the answers to many of our questions not the most important thing, but also we should have a posture which holds out the possibility, hear this, that you might be wrong, that I might be wrong. In his book, Think Again, Professor Adam Grant suggests we need to spend as much time rethinking as we do thinking. We need to spend as much time rethinking as we do thinking. Well, his thinking, and he's considering a broad view of knowing, how much more ought we be a people willing to not think but also rethink who God is, what he's like, and what he has called us to as a people? Finite creatures learning, growing in their understanding of an infinite, full, and forever God. I'm not suggesting that we act like we can't and don't know anything. We're going to talk about that next week when Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, but then he says everything belongs to God. So we'll consider how we come up with our opinions next week as godly, loving Bible people. But what I am suggesting today is that our posture towards bricks and springs is that we find within the Bible these things should change. It should change us. It should cause us to be more humble. We should not enjoy our theology with superiority. In fact, only good theology, or rather, when we know that it's good, it actually humbles us. It doesn't puff us up. We should not build our doctrines out of fear. What should we do? He says we should welcome people. We should not despise or judge, but welcome. Why? Because one day you're going to stand before a cosmic judge. We stand before the Lord, and I don't think he's going to ask you, did you get all your bricks and springs right? Did you organize my Bible appropriately? Right? I'm convinced he's not going to ask, did everyone know that you were right about everything? Did everybody know that you were better than them? Right? He's just, he's not going to ask that. Can I get an amen? He's not going to ask that. He's not going to say, did you represent well on Twitter? Did, did you fight the good fight every day in people's DMs? Did you get in there with that anger and rage and hate and just let them know you knew the truth? He's not going to ask you that. He's not going to ask me that. We'll stand one day before this judge, and it seems to me more likely that he's going to ask something else. Did you love people? Especially, did you love people who disagreed with you? Were you even willing to suffer 
are wrong or looking like you were less intelligent for the sake of loving them? Were you willing to lay down your rights so that the unity of the church would persist and your ego might suffer a little bit? My ego might suffer a little bit. Did you even love those you disagreed with? Or did you live with fear and superiority? I think that's what our judge is going to ask us. What was your heart like? In other words, I think it's going to be a simple question. Did you welcome people the way I welcomed you? See, I think there can be a beauty in our unity and in our diversity. Not because we're going to get all the right answers right, not because the ideas don't matter, but because I think through God and Christ, we can do something that I think this world is really hungry for, is to be at peace with one another, to disagree with dignity and good faith and love, humility. So may that be true for God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We may not be the type that goes online and rails all the time about right and wrong and our view and perspective, but things persist in our hearts every day. We may not type it out, but we have a long-form, punitive response in our hearts and minds about people we view as wrong or evil, ideas that they've gotten wrong and therefore don't love God like we do. Father, forgive us. We haven't welcomed, we've despised, and we've judged. I know I have, Father. Forgive me in particular for the ways that I look at other pastors and other churches who don't do it as well as Church in the Square. That's just not you. Forgive us for the ways we look at other moms in our church family and critique and criticize in our hearts, despise and judge. Forgive us for the ways we compare with other fathers and see ourselves as stronger and more loving. Forgive us for the ways we look at our sisters, find ourselves more faithful than them. Forgive us for the ways we look at our brothers. They haven't lived as nobly, haven't believed the gospel like we have. Father, this is just not your way. This is not how you've welcomed us. And so we pray that through the power of the resurrection, would you heal our wounded hearts? Would you heal us from believing that we have to live free in order to show our superiority or to build walls to keep us safe. The only place where we have freedom and safety is in the palm of your hand. So forgive our sins. As the psalmist says, put a new song in our hearts, one of love and joy, grace and mercy. Not because these ideas don't matter, but because people always matter more than ideas. Help us to love our brothers and sisters just like that, like family. A family of redeemed, a redeemed people. Cleanse us, give us new language, give us new sight, give us new love, 
give us new hope and a future. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.